0: Tonight we're in Colossians chapter 3. So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 3 verse 15. You guys ready to study the word tonight? A lot of good stuff in Colossians 3. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. That you've forgiven us of our sins. And as we look at what it means practically for you, Jesus, to be preeminent in our lives, we ask that you would speak to us, that we would come in humbleness and brokenness, really being aware of what you would want to instruct us. We pray that marriages would be strengthened, that relationships with kids would grow deeper, that we would glorify you in the workplace. So Lord, would you, you take but we're going to read and implant it into our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's get right after it tonight. Let's jump right into verse 15 of Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verse 15, it says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. If you remember back to last week, we talked about vertical living. The first 14 verses of this chapter, to set our mind on things that are above to seek those things that are above. Then also we've got a wardrobe of the world, prior to knowing Christ our Savior, that we're to put off, and then we're to put on. We talk about the, the put-offs and the, the put-ons, and then to finally put on love, which is the bond of perfection. That goes in now to verse 15, and in these few verses, it's talking about the condition of the heart, who we are internally. And for us to be able to allow the peace of God to rule in our hearts and our minds, I think it's really important for us to be living in the first 14 verses. Because when we're putting off those sinful things and putting on the new wardrobe of Christ, then our heart is open to allow the peace of God to rule. It's an interesting Greek word. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. This word rule... It means an umpire. If you have played baseball or you have played volleyball, and the umpire is saying it's inbounds or out of bounds. In baseball, it's a, it's a foul ball. It, it, it's out of bounds. So the peace of God, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, is going to let you know, yes, this is inbounds and this is out of bounds. And the exhortation is, now let the peace of God rule in your hearts and your minds. So you may be sitting down watching a TV show and all of a sudden God's peace is saying this is out of bounds. You don't feel at peace watching that show. And and you know someone else who does. But that's not the issue is you don't have a peace about it. It, it, It's out of bounds. You may be single and be in in a dating relationship and all of a sudden you don't have peace about that relationship. The Holy Spirit starting to speak something to you. And then there's other times where you absolutely feel the peace of God. You feel the joy of the Lord. You go, man, this, this is exactly where God would want me to be. And he's saying, let God's peace be a guiding force in your heart, and your life. Now, let's be honest. It can get really weird once we talk, start talking about the peace of God. You're saying, is this some kind of feeling? Like, okay, I get the warm fuzzies and God's, God's in this. And then I don't have the warm fuzzies, so God's not in this. And first we have the word of God, don't we? And the word of God directs us and and it guides us. So sometimes people claim the peace of God while participating in something that's in disobedience to God's word. They're being deceived by their emotions. Does that make sense? So first we have the guidance of God's word. And if we're walking in the guidance of God's word, then we can trust the peace of God where he begins to, to lead us and let us know, this is what I want you to do. And this is what I don't want you to do. This was convicting for me to think about today, is what's ruling my heart? Because this is saying that the peace of God should rule our hearts, should guide our hearts. I should be going through my day in a place of peace. Peace with the Lord, peace with others. But oftentimes it's other things that's ruling my heart. Fear, anger, covetousness, discontentment. That's driving the day. And God wants to flip that and change that and say, Eric, I want my peace to rule you. I want my peace to, to guide you and direct you. Notice what happens as God's peace leads us to which you are called in one body. So as I have peace with the Lord and I know that I'm in the right place with the Lord, then that should lead to peaceful relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we're called to this as one body. We're, we're called to be in peace with the Lord, but we're also called to be in peace with with one another. And be thankful. To go through our days in that place of of gratitude. There's, There's so much power in being thankful. God is glorified. We're edified when we choose to be thankful. Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom. So first, God's peace is ruling. Our hearts, but then the Word of God is dwelling in us richly. This is so important, church, as we go through the Bible. So on Wednesday night, which I'm really excited about, we study the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter, which means next week we're going to start 1 Thessalonians. We're going to finish Colossians tonight. As we go through the Word, the question is, is the Word going through me? As we're reading God's Word individually, is God's Word dwelling in me richly so getting a hold of my heart and my mind and my emotions it's inside of me it's one thing to know the word up here it's one thing to know the information of the word and it's another thing to have God's word impact your heart impact your life where you're saying it's living in me it's dwelling in me and that's when the word of God gets powerful so you might say well how do I get to that place where God's word dwells in me. A lot of it has to do with the heart condition. We're not going to all get something out of the word tonight. Because sometimes we approach the word of God with a hard heart, don't we? So God's word just just bounces right off. We, we have to have a soft heart. We have to have an open heart in it and a teachable heart. I think that's really important. Ears that are ready to hear the word of God. I know for me, a lot of times in this process of having God's word get inside of me, meditating upon it is really important writing it down writing it down in a journal and when it's amazing when I write down a verse as I'm reading God's word in my my quiet time I remember it so much more it dwells in me to such a a greater degree a lot of times when I'm reading it goes in one ear and out another hey Eric what did you read this morning I have no idea what I read this morning right but when I write it down and then writing it down and praying through it. That's what meditating means. You're, you're contemplating on it. You're, you're praying it in. You're responding to God and who he is and what he's saying to you through the text. And then it dwells in you what? Richly. Richly is the absence of poverty. We're not speaking of financial poverty or physical poverty, spiritual poverty. To where, to where God's word's abounding in your life. It's, it's overflowing in your life in all wisdom. And wisdom is knowledge applied. Let God's word dwell in you, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This is the overflow factor. How do you know that you've been carrying a bucket full of water if your feet are wet? That's evidence that you've been carrying a big bucket, a five-gallon bucket full of water. How do you know if God's peace is ruling your heart? guiding your days? How do you know if God's word is dwelling in you richly if you begin to sing to the Lord? Because his grace is in your heart. Notice the emphasis of the heart. Peace in the heart. The word of God in the heart. Grace in the heart. And then all of a sudden, it affects our mouths. I'm singing of the goodness of God. I'm singing of the grace of God. As we're singing, notice that others are encouraged. We're teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Teach is to instruct, admonish is to counsel. This is a great way to live, and it's a wonderful environment to be in. If you have Christian friends, if your spouse is saved, your kids know the Lord, those that you're around, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and they begin to sing to the Lord. Isn't it powerful to hear another believer sing to the Lord? And then you find yourself admonished. You find yourself instructed about the character and the nature of God through this song. It wasn't even the intent of them singing. It's not like, okay, I'm really going to get to my husband this morning, so I'm going to sing, Great is Our God. I'm going to sing it loud and strong so that he can understand that God is great. That's the wrong motivation for singing. (laughs) Just singing because... You're overflowing with the word of God that's in you. You're overflowing with God's peace and you can't help but but sing to the Lord, not really concerned who's around you. And then the byproduct is someone is instructed and someone is admonished because of God's graces in your heart and your life. It is a, a biblical response to God's goodness to sing. During these times together, but times when we're at home, working in the garage, taking a shower, driving in the car, to to sing to the lord to express our gratitude to the lord because of the grace the love that he's poured into our hearts verse 17 and whatever you do in word or deed do all in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks to god the father through him whatever is an all inclusive word isn't it that's everything everything that you find to do Do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus refers to the character and nature of Christ. So everything that I'm doing, am I doing it in the flavor, the manner in which Christ would live? The way that that he would act? If I'm talking with my kids, am I doing it in the name of Jesus Christ? In word or deed? So the things we say and the things we do. Am I driving in the name of Jesus it's a little convicting. Could I attach Christ's name to my driving? God forbid, you know. Blasphemy of all blasphemies, right? But this all of a sudden takes away the separation between sacred and secular. So we might say that this is sacred time. There's things that you're not supposed to do in the sanctuary. Like it might be a little bit inappropriate if maybe right about here... You brought a big bag of Doritos. Just pop- I mean, we're a pretty casual church. You just opened up your Doritos, and you're, like loud enough for everybody to hear and crinkle in the bag a little bit. Then, really loud, you turn to the next person. You're like, hey, you want some? Nacho cheese. Because <laughs> this is supposed to be sacred time, right? We're here to worship the Lord and, and study the word, and that doesn't fit the, this, the sacred environment. So there's, there's a lot of things we probably wouldn't attempt here in the sanctuary. But then we go outside of this place, and, and that completely changes. And from God's mind, it, it's no more spiritual to be here than to take out the trash. He doesn't separate us being in here from taking out the trash. He doesn't separate from here from being a college student, be, being a high school student. He doesn't change here from doing accounting from being a school teacher. It's all worship unto God. And Whatever you do, in word or in deed, we have the opportunity to do it to the glory of God, to do it in the name of Jesus Christ. So now all of a sudden, the internal is beginning to affect the external. The truth that Christ is preeminent, that he's supreme, that he's number one in my life, is now beginning to be lived out in everything that I do, to say, God, I want to do this in the name of Jesus. I want to do this in a way that's in accordance with the character and the nature of Christ. The rest of chapter 3 now goes into relationships. Relationships between husband and wife, parent and children, employer and employee. In in Paul's day, it was master and slaves. So verse 18, wives submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. We touched on this in Ephesians as well, wives, God is calling you to come underneath the leadership of your husband. The book of Ephesians taught us that your husband is the head of the home, as Christ is Christ's head of the church. Submission's almost become a cuss word, hasn't it? You know, it's like, I can't believe that you would teach and say this word, submission. And a lot of times we think that submission means that you're being inferior. If you have to come underneath someone, else's leadership, that some way that means that you're inferior to them. But we find in every place, God has given us order. He's given a design. Even in the Godhead, in the Trinity, there is order. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And the Son always submitted to the Father, but they're absolute equals. So wives, in submitting to your husbands, you're really following in Christ's footsteps. And in no way are you saying that you're inferior to your husband. And husbands, if you think because God has called you to be a leader in your home that somehow you are superior to your wife, you've missed it altogether. Uh, you haven't missed the, the biblical teaching on this. As is fitting in the Lord. So you're submitting to, to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. If your husband's asking you to do something that's sinful, that's in a disobedience to God's word, at that point you say, I'm going to refer to the Lord. As long as it's biblical and moral and ethical, you're following your husband's leadership. In preparing for tonight, I really believe that the Lord is wanting to touch marriages. He's wanting us to get into his word and apply these things. And wives, if I could speak to your heart and challenge you in this, and you're like, who's this guy that's going to challenge me on being a wife? What does he know about being a wife? Well, I've never been a wife. Okay, let's just clear that up right now. So, (laughs) praise the Lord. Right? But in observing marriages, if a wife doesn't understand that she's called to follow her husband's leadership, it is going to cause a lot of tension inside of your marriage. And God wants the best for your marriage. Do you know God wants you to have a great marriage? He wants you to have a far out marriage for his glory. So he's writing this to couples throughout all the time saying, this is the way marriage is going to work best. This is the way that God's going to be glorified. Your husband desires to be respected and the way that you can show him respect is to follow his leadership. That doesn't mean that it's silent obedience. It doesn't mean that you just walk off a cliff with, with your husband. You should be inputting on decisions. Husbands, we should be going to our wives and what do you think? And let's pray about this together and let's really come to the right decision, the decision that, that God, God would have for us. But on a core level, in your heart, realizing, okay, I've accepted my husband as my head, as my leader. I'm going to come underneath his leadership. If we've talked something out, we've prayed something through, we can't come to an agreement. It's already been decided. I'm going to let my husband make the decision. And this is the beautiful thing, ladies. If you will do that, you're honoring God. You might be saying, Well, what if my husband makes a mistake? He will. God will get him, God will deal with him. Ladies, are you, you tired of trying to be your husband's keeper? And I got to get him in line. And, well, you know, respect him and follow him, put him in lo- the Lord's hands. God's got a big spanking paddle, he's got the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I find as a husband that as Amber does this, it really challenges me to grow as a man. She says, I trust you. I'm going to trust that you're going to make a godly decision. Then that forces me to go to the Lord in a greater way. It forces me to seek the Lord because, and husbands know, innately know, I've got the trust of my wife. I've got the respect of my wife. If you're single and you're like, tuning out you're like this isn't for me if you desire to be married someday single ladies you do have to understand biblically you're signing up to follow your husband so if you can't picture yourself following him because of who he is don't marry him because that's what God's calling you to do and before you're married you have the choice but once you're married that's what the Lord asks you to do and if you're thinking well I'll change him I'll change him, you know. Once I, once I get a hold of him, you know, I'll, I'll make him the man that I want him to be and deep down I know he wants to be. No, he's per- not going to change as much as you think. We'll just leave it there. And then the challenge to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. So God's calling us as husbands to love our wives. Again, we talked about this in Ephesians as well. How are we to love? We're to love as Christ loves the church, sacrificially, laying our lives down, being servant leaders for, for our wives. And men, as we've exhorted women through this passage, it's turned for us to, to be exhorted. God is calling us to, to love our wives, to lay down our lives for our wives. Tonight, I want to speak bitter, or specifically on the bitterness Why is it that the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, would highlight bitterness towards husbands? Isn't that a little unique? Like, we're going through this, it's similar to to Ephesians, and then all of a sudden, God says, Husbands, all right, I want to speak to you for a second. Love your wife, and don't be bitter towards them. We have to then understand, from the passage, that there's a tendency for us as husbands to get bitter towards our wives. If that weren't the case, then the Holy Spirit wouldn't highlight it. So let's go there for a second. Are there husbands tonight where you're bitter towards your wife? Is the Holy Spirit starting to expose this hard heart? Over a period of time, for whatever reason, we've allowed ourselves to get bitter. Unforgiveness has set in. Taking our wives for granted. Why do people get divorced? What pops into your mind? Everybody says adultery. That's the reason why most people get divorced. Do you know that that's not the biblical reason why people get divorced? Jesus told us it's because of hard hearts. That they asked Moses in the Old Testament for divorce because their hearts got hard. Nobody walks down the aisle anticipating to get divorced. You're in love with each other. You do anything for each other. But over time, something hardens the heart, and it's bitterness. So, if you found yourself, husbands, if we found ourselves in that place where we've begun to get bitter, where we haven't forgiven our wife, began to compare her to others, think, well, if I was only married to her, th- those types of things, we need to get right with the Lord. We need to choose forgiveness. Christ has forgiven us. We need to forgive our wives. Men were called to love as Christ loved the church. We're called to not be bitter. If you're a single man and you're desiring to get, get married, please understand the kind of leadership that God is calling you into. Now addressing children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Children learn obedience in their relationship with their parents. So if you have children, it's important to understand that God is calling you to call them to a place of obedience. If our children don't learn to obey us as parents, then when they go to deal with other authority in their life, it's going to be much more difficult to respect the teacher, much more difficult to respect the boss, much more difficult to respect the police officer. Why is there erosion of authority in our society? It starts in the home. Kids haven't learned that they need to honor and that respect their parents. And in honoring and respecting their parents, they're honoring the Lord. So that's a beautiful thing to instruct and to begin to teach our children. Children, obey your parents in all things, for God's pleased in this. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Very similar to Ephesians 6, verse 4, don't provoke your children to wrath. An interesting insight here in verse 21 is if we provoke our children, this applies to fathers and mothers, they become angry and discouraged. Ephesians 6 says they're provoked to wrath. Here, they're provoked to discouragement. So this causes us to examine the overall environment in which we're raising our kids. There has to be a balance. A balance of discipline, loving, correction, instruction, and nurturing. There needs to be a tender environment there. If there is just discipline or just instruction without the nurturing, they're not going to grow in the way that God would intend. If there's the nurturing without the corrective consequences, so it's the balance of all three. And so step back and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us and say, man, am I provoking my child to wrath? And ultimately bringing discouragement in their hearts and lives. Verse 22, bond servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Literally in the Greek, the word bond servants is slaves. The new King James has translated it bond servants. This is not speaking to somebody who is a slave by choice that has chosen that. This is the Roman Empire where slavery was a big deal, There were slaves in the church of Colossae wondering, how how does my Christian life apply in this context? And Paul writes to them, obey your masters according to the flesh. They're only your master according to the flesh. Your true master is the Lord. But obey them not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. For us, the application is our boss. God's ordained authority. He did put parents into our lives, and now he's put a boss into our lives, or several bosses into our lives, and God would want us to obey him. Obey him, not just as a men pleaser, not just trying to get a raise or a promotion, but out of fear of God, out of reverence to God, saying, I'm not working for them, I'm working for God. And because I'm working for God, this is the boss that the Lord's placed over me, so I'm going to obey them at all possible as long as they're not asking me to disobey the word of God. And that speaks so much to the authority that's been placed over us. Could you imagine if there was a slave who was a Christian and he took this to heart and he treated his master in that way because Christ had gotten hold of his life to that degree? I might You might be going, man, I'm really wrestling with what God's calling me to. I'm wrestling with the way he's asking me to treat my boss. Well, at least you get to go home at the end of the day, right? At least you're, you're, you're not a slave. And so this is a really radical teaching that the Lord is, is declaring. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. I love this. This is a, a verse to memorize. Many of you have probably, if not, underline it. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Do you know that God wants our hearts in our actions? I think a lot of times it's hard for our hearts to connect with what we're doing. Billy was talking about that tonight in worship. You know, if we, if we sing but our heart's not in it, if we raise our hands but our heart's not in it, it's empty, empty to the Lord. And you can tell when someone's heart is in their work or not, can't you? It doesn't matter what they do. You're exposed to their work and you go, man, they're doing it with their heart. We all appreciate that, don't we? We go, man, that's, that's fun to be around. Maybe you're getting your groceries and you're going through the line and all of a sudden the, the person that is checking you out, they're not checking you out like that. They're checking out your groceries, but they're checking you out and they're, you know, doing their thing. But their heart is into it. That's like you're, in your mind you're going, that, that's a difficult job have to go through that mundane task. And, he, and here they are. They're they're doing it with their heart, and they're asking me how my, my days going. And you're like, man, you're awesome. What a, what a great great job that you're you're doing. You go get your car fixed, and someone's heart is in it. They're like, they're really caring about the work they're doing, want to do a quality job, and keep your family safe. On the like, man, thanks for caring about my car. We care about our car, and you care about our car, and man, I really really appreciate that. And they're not just trying to sell you a bunch of repairs that you don't don't really need. We want to be that person. Maybe tonight God's going to awaken you unto your work. Your work says something about who you are and your relationship with Christ and the priority that he is in our lives. The preeminence of Christ should be seen in our work. And work happens everywhere we go. And again, whatever. It's an all-inclusive word. So if we're doing work at home, if we're getting paid, it's our job to do work. We're serving the Lord by serving in the church. Whatever we do, let's put our heart into it because we're doing it to God, not to men. I'm here doing this for the Lord, and I'm not doing this for men. In verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. God sees and he rewards. God sees and he rewards. Maybe your boss doesn't see, maybe your spouse doesn't see. Others don't appreciate it. God rewards for a cup of cold water to a child in Jesus' name. So you go home tonight and your child's thirsty, you go, man, I love that give that for you. Get that for you. Hand it to him with a big smile. God's gone, I'm going to reward you for that. You're merging and you let somebody in in traffic, even though they're a moron and they don't know how to merge. <laughs> but you let them merge because you're doing it for Christ, right? And you don't call him a moron. <laughs> Do it unto the Lord. God sees and he, he rewards. I just blew that one, huh? Blew that one. <laughs> Verse 25. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there's no partiality. You're going to get rewarded for doing right and serving the Lord. And the person who does wrong, God sees and is going to hold them accountable. We're going to go into chapter 4. If you're the boss, if you're the master, master, give to your bondservants what's just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The idea is here is how does God treat you and you're accountable to him? That's the way that you want to treat those who are underneath your authority. God's blessed you with that leadership and that authority. Give careful consideration that you're treating them in a way that's just and fair. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. We start to see the flow of this. Okay, God, I'm trying to go through my days being the husband that you want me to be. Ladies, being the wife that you want me to be. Being that single person that God has called you to be. I want to do my work work unto you. How is that going to happen? By being connected to the Lord. By remaining steadfast in prayer, praying without ceasing. Asking for the Lord's help and the power of the Holy Spirit. Continue earnestly in prayer. Being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. This is the fourth time in a few verses that Paul's mentioned thanksgiving. It's important. As we're praying, we're thankful. And staying in that place of gratitude. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ from which I'm also in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Paul's saying, would you pray for us? Here we are in prison, and would God open up a door for the word? Wouldn't it be easy for Paul to pray, wouldn't God open up the door of deliverance for us to get out of prison? He's saying, I really want God to open up an effective door to be able to speak as I ought the things of Christ. That's a great thing to pray for one another as brothers and sisters of Christ. Let's pray that for our church collectively. Let's pray that for one another individually. God, would you open us up doors to share the mystery of Christ? Because isn't that so exciting? Isn't that wonderful? And I believe if we're living in a way that we've just talked about, God uses that to open up doors in in people's lives. God, please open up a door so that we can speak the, the word of Christ. Walk in all wisdom to those who are outside, redeeming the time. We have to remember, unbelievers are watching, aren't they? They know that we're believers. They know that we're Christians, hopefully. We want to walk in wisdom towards them. We need to remember, they don't understand who Christ is. They don't know the word of God. They haven't read the book of Proverbs. I want to walk in wisdom towards them. Walk in a way that they could understand this and then redeem the time. The days are evil, Buy back each opportunity. You think about redeeming something. Redeeming that coupon. We want to redeem the time. We want to buy back the time. Take every opportunity. Okay, God, you've given me this opportunity with this person. What are you doing in their life? Want to walk in wisdom before them? Then let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Seasoning is everything, isn't it? I mean, a potato is just a potato until it has some salt and pepper on it. And then it becomes delicious, right? Seasoning is everything. Paul's saying, the Holy Spirit speaking, let your speech be seasoned with grace. The grace is the salt. What does salt do in the... Paul's time, it would prevent corruption, provide taste, provoke thirst. So here we're going through our days. We're wanting to behave wise with those that don't know Christ, we're wanting to encourage believers. So we want to take the time to sprinkle our conversation with some grace. What's grace? Unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. Proverbs says, oh, a soft answer turns away wrath. So here, someone's angry, someone's being harsh, and we respond with a soft word. Putting grace. We don't always have to give people what they deserve. God doesn't give us what we deserve. Try it. Put a little bit of grace in the conversation and see what God does. See how God works. There's a lot of challenge for us in, in verse 6. From verse 7 to the end of the chapter, we're going to see some co-laborers that Paul is with. We'll talk briefly about some of these individuals, but more than anything else, I want you to see that the Apostle Paul was in relationship. He's in relationship. The Christian life is meant to be lived in concert with other believers, in relationship with one another. In the book of Acts, we see Paul linked to 100 people. In the book of Romans, 26 people. Right here, 10 people. People were important to the Apostle Paul. He had friendship. He wasn't alone. He never tried to serve the Lord alone. It's so important for us to examine our own lives in that regard. So Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. So Paul's going to send Tychicus to the church of Colossae. Quite a resume for Tychicus. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose that he may know your circumstance and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. So Onesimus is from Colossae. The book of Philemon is addressed to Onesimus. Or, excuse me, Onesimus is a part of that story. It's addressed to Philemon. Onesimus was a runaway slave who got born again, who got saved and he's to go back to Philemon and make things right. Paul writes to him and says, "I want you to receive Onesimus." So an amazing transformation that happens, a faithful and beloved brother. They will make known to you all the things which are happening here. So Onesimus is going to travel with Tychicus. Archicus, my fellow pre- prisoner greets you. Archicus is mentioned in Acts 19:20 20, and 27. He's with Paul on his third missionary journey. With Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. This is John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark that we're studying on Sunday mornings. Remember a little bit of his history. He abandoned Paul on a missionary journey. Paul says you can't come on the next missionary trip. John Mark continues to serve the Lord, becomes the assistant to Peter. At the end of Paul's life, Paul says, send to me, John Mark, because he's profitable in ministry. And here as well, he's encouraging them to welcome Mark. His life is a great story of perseverance. Jesus, who is called Justice, Jesus was a common name at that time among Hebrews, and he was also called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision they've proven to be a comfort to me. Many of the Jewish believers turned their back on Paul. Epaphras, who is one of you, another from Colossae, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervent for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. He's known as a prayer warrior. He's someone who labors in prayer. What a great and worthy work to do. He's fervent in his prayers for the maturity of the church of Colossae, that they would be mature and complete in the will of God. For I bear witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those that are in Herpolis. So he's got zeal as well. He's fervent in prayer, but he's zealous. The word zeal is excitement of mind, fervor of spirit. Luke, the beloved physician who wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And Demas greets you. There's a story behind Demas. We find him in Philemon, verse 24, listed as a fellow laborer. But then in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, it says, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. So there's a little warning with Demas's life. He served the Lord, he was a fellow laborer. He was effective in ministry, but then he fell in love with the world, and he left the work of God. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and Nymphis and the church that is in his house. He is known for having church in his house. Church can meet anywhere. Can meet in a house, can meet in a building like this, can meet in a coffee shop, but please hear this. It's really important for a A church to be a church from a biblical perspective, there has to be elders. So if a church is meeting in a home, great. But for it to operate in a healthy way that's in accordance with God's word, there needs to be men in that group that are taking biblical leadership because that's what we find in scripture. There's a home church movement that's taking place and I'm all for it as long as they have pastors and elders, that they have spiritual leadership. Because if you get a group of people meeting in a home and there's no elders, then what happens when there needs to be church discipline? What happens when there needs to be sin dealt with? And when God set up the church, he set it up with elders. So it doesn't matter where they meet, but it does matter how they're set up and if they're operating with biblical elders. And that's true here, too. I mean, you could have a big building, and if you don't have elders, you're not operating in a biblical sense. So where the church meets, and that's not important, but how it meets is important. Amen? So we go on and we look at verse 16. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of Laodicea, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So he wrote another letter to Laodicea that we don't have, and these epistles were to be shared. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you've received from the Lord that you may fulfill it. Wow, what's going on in Archippus' life? Finishing up all these things, Paul's sending these greetings, and then he's like, hey, Archie, God has given you ministry. He's given it to you. You've received it from the Lord, now you fulfill it. And we need to look at those opportunities that God has given to us. He's allowed it. He's opened the door. He's equipped it. And are we walking away from it or are we fulfilling it? This salutation by my own hand, Paul, Paul would normally dictate his letters, someone else writing, and then he would sign off at the end. Remember my change. He says, don't forget that I'm in chains. Grace be with you all. Amen. Could have gone into that last section in a lot more detail, but this is what I want to highlight, is where are you at with relationships inside of the body of Christ? Christ. Would you kind of go, man, I've been hurt, and I'm moving away from relationships. Am I too busy, and I don't have time for relationships? I'm I'm more solo. I like being by myself. I'm not saying that you need a ton. I'm not saying you need a ton of relationships. But we all need good quality relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think it's one of the key ingredients that we find such effectiveness in the Apostle Paul is he fought through that isolation. He fought for relationships. And he was intentional about staying in relationships inside of the body of Christ. Because I know what, this, what Satan wants to do. He wants to isolate us. You will get hurt by believers. Our flesh will start to have a tendency to say, it's not worth it. And to push all past that and go, you know, there's far more benefit of being in relationship with believers than, than being isolated, because I think we all know what happens to our hearts and lives with what isolation takes place. Our flesh and Satan wants us to remember the bad experiences that we've had with believers, but think about all the good experiences we've had with believers. Amen? My life wouldn't be what it is today if it wasn't for other believers that have invested in me, That has shown me the love of Christ. We grow through one another. God speaks truth to us through one another. We're held accountable because of relationship with one another. So it is so very, very worth it. Colossians, a very powerful letter of the preeminence of Christ. We began with who Jesus is. His power, his position, his authority. And then as we see who Jesus is, then that's applied to our lives to every fabric of our lives. So let's end where we began tonight and say, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. As you come and take communion, spend time with the Lord, confess sin to the Lord, ask him to meet you in circumstances, and let's leave tonight enjoying the peace of God. Amen? All right, let's stand together and let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for revealing yourself through your word, through the book of Colossians. We see your power, we see your position, we see your authority, and we want to accept that in our lives. We want you to be number one. It's easy to say, but it's hard to live. Would you work in the very fiber of us, the very deepest part of us, and may that overflow into our relationships. With family and friends and the body of Christ and the workplace, we want you to be glorified in our lives. Would you touch marriages, touch relationship with kids? Would you touch our hearts in regards to our work? We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.